KPPB is an intellectual property law firm based in Southern California with national and international reach. We are fortunate to be a trusted advisor to world-class research institutions across the country. At KPPB, we measure our success by the success of our clients. Our attorneys are motivated by a desire to help transformative technologies move from the lab to the market. If you are interested in learning more about our services and how we might turn our expertise to your challenges, please reach out today. You can find more information about us at www.kppb.com. You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. As we continue our Native American Heritage series, we'll be exploring the crucial role of intellectual property in indigenous communities and the remarkable individuals and organizations working to protect indigenous knowledge. Joining us today is Susan Anthony from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, who serves as the USPTO's Tribal Affairs Liaison. Susan is an attorney in the Office of Policy and International Affairs at the PTO, where she is a member of the trademark team and, as noted, also serves as the USPTO's Tribal Affairs Liaison. Susan is the lead on trademarks for the Africa team, handles the ICANN and Internet Governance Forum portfolios, assists the Office of Education on the USPTO's annual National Summer Teacher Institute, and works with the American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian businesses on intellectual property and cultural heritage issues. Susan has over 35 years experience and expertise in almost all facets of intellectual property protection and enforcement, both domestic and international. Welcome, Susan. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thank you ever so much. I'm delighted and honored with your invitation. Well, I'm excited to have you here, Susan. And you've been at the USPTO for almost 20 years. Talk to us a little bit about your role there at the Patent Office. Actually, I feel blessed to be at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I spent almost an equal number of years in the private sector, both in the private practice of law and in corporate practice before coming to the USPTO. But I will tell you that this is just a a delight to be here because no two days are the same. And over the many years that I have been here at the USPTO, I have not only had the opportunity to put into practice my years in the private sector and in the corporate sector, but I've also had the opportunity to develop new skills and abilities uh, that were just waiting for that opportunity. So here at the USPTO, in the Office of Policy and International Affairs, I wear various hats, as you've already outlined. But I think perhaps the work that I love best uh, centers on my work in cultural heritage and traditional cultural expressions. So that gives me an opportunity to work in those issues, for example, in my work with sub-Saharan African countries 
And it also gives me an opportunity to work on those issues on behalf of the USPTO uh, for my other uh, relationships within the federal government. And then finally, perhaps my favorite work is as the USPTO's Tribal Affairs Liaison. My primary responsibility in that position is for formal tribal consultations on policies that have a substantial direct impact on Indian tribes. What inspired you to work with Indigenous intellectual property and these other cultural heritage issues? And I'm curious How did that come about and how did it ultimately align with your role there at the Patent Office? Well, I think I have to go back to the 1960s. Uh, When I was in high school in the 1960s, and I appreciate that I am dating myself, (laughs) but but it was at that time that I became friends with twins, a boy and a girl from the Navajo Nation who had been adopted by an older white couple Although maybe when you're a teen, uh, all people who are older look like older uh, couples. And I especially bonded with a young man who was a budding cellist, and I served as his piano accompanist for a competition. My family moved away shortly thereafter, and we lost track of one another. But I still see him in my mind's eye, Lisa, as clearly as if it were yesterday. Wow. This past summer, I was honored to speak at the Navajo Nation Economic Summit on the Navajo Nation. In the week following a seminal Supreme Court decision upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act intact. And it really reminded me of this young man who was my friend all those years ago. I tried to tell the participants at the economic summit what the invitation meant to me, but I began to cry. Oh, wow. So I had to move on to intellectual property. Perhaps there's a less less crying in intellectual property. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, except maybe if you're a patent attorney drafting applications, occasionally we do cry. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's my memory of him. Uh, he's gone now. He's passed on. That keeps me grounded and helps me know that what I do now is what I was always meant to do. Wow, that's an incredible personal story. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And um, did you you keep in touch with his sister? Have um, you said he was a twin? I know where she is, and I have thought from time to time about reaching out to her, but I wouldn't want to uh, startle her. So I haven't. haven't come to any decision trying to say hello to people that you've thought about for mm, 50 years. Uh, Yes. And then reaching out to them to say, I've always been thinking about you. I just hadn't reached out before to tell you. Uh, But someday I may do that yet. So let's turn back to your role at the USPTO and um, Susan, wouldn't you mind sharing with us how the USPTO engages with officials and organizations involved in IP from different countries, particularly those representing indigenous communities? I periodically get questions from representatives in those countries who know of me and my work. Um, I do hear with some regularity from, for example, Australia and Canada. 
But the way in which the USPTO has been primarily engaged with other countries on these issues is in the WIPO-IGC. And what that stands for is the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, Intergovernmental Committee on Intellectual Property and Genetic Resources, traditional knowledge, and folklore, or what people more commonly refer to as traditional cultural expressions. That's quite a mouthful. I wouldn't expect anybody to remember it. We simply refer to it as the WIPO-IGC. There are 193 member states in the World Intellectual Property Organization, and the IGC is undertaking negotiations regarding how best to protect the genetic resources the traditional knowledge, and the traditional cultural expressions of indigenous peoples. In the United States, the indigenous peoples located in the United States are the American Indians, the Alaska Natives, and the Native Hawaiians. The U.S. ETO has been responsible for leading the development of U.S. positions on these issues at the WIPO-IGC, and the USPTO has been representing the United States in these negotiations. So, Susan, given all that, um, I'm curious, and I'm sure many of our listeners are as well, about some of the practical services the USPTO provides to Indigenous communities. What are some of the services that are available, and how can Indigenous individuals or organizations access those? I don't know how long we have to discuss this, but there's <laughs> quite quite a few uh, tools that I'd like to mention. We have all the time you want, Susan. Uh, the USPTO offers training on intellectual property to American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians, as we do for all businesses located in the U.S. I serve as the primary point of contact as the Tribal Affairs Liaison for the agency, Although requests for assistance uh, may come in through other federal or state agencies, or even from the USPTO's regional offices, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, and Silicon Valley, and a regional office to be established somewhere in the Southeast in the near future. We can cover the full range of intellectual property, whether patents, trademarks, copyright, or trade secrets, and I also add the protection of cultural heritage, including issues arriving in the WIPO-IGC, because that is of great interest and great importance to Indigenous peoples located in the United States, as it, as it probably is to Indigenous groups located throughout the world, which there are, I have read, over 360. The USPTO also maintains the Native American Tribal Insignia Database, in which federally and state-recognized tribes can record their official insignia at no charge. This database is helpful to the USPTO in determining if trademarks and pending applications falsely suggest connections to the tribal insignia of Native American tribes. I mention this in particular because I think that this is a very important tool, Lisa. It is not trademark registration per se. It is not trademark protection per se, but it is an important tool to help protect against encroachment. Nonetheless, I remain um, concerned that there are very, very, very few federally or state-recognized tribes that even after 20 years have chosen to record their insignia in the uh, database. And I'd like 
Yeah, I, I we don't know. We have some various uh, suppositions as to why, but I think for many, they simply don't know or don't understand what it is or may mean. So I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk, to talk about this here. I also work closely with the Indian Arts and Crafts Board of the U.S. Department of the Interior and together. We proudly developed a brochure, Introduction to Intellectual Property, Trademarks, Copyrights, Patents, and Trade Secrets for American Indian and Alaska Native Artists. It's available on the Indian Arts and Crafts Board website, IACB website, and we're currently planning to update it. And then we also, in 2023, we're pleased to welcome 11 teachers who are teaching STEM to Indigenous students to the USPTO's annual National Summer Teacher Institute. I've been a faculty member of NISTI since its beginning, and I was just very, very, very excited to have this uh, development in 2023. We're exploring what we can do to help teachers of tribal students on an ongoing basis into the future. And then finally, I do have to give a shout out to the USPTO's director, Kathy Vidal, who has been very influential in my life here in this work and is very committed to ensuring that we provide resources to the tribes and to Native Hawaiians. And I am very fortunate to have her support for this work. Wow, it sounds like a tremendous undertaking there at the patent office and sounds like a real need as well. I'm curious, does the PTO ever go out and do roadshows towards some of the these groups, whether it's American Indians, Alaska Natives or Native Hawaiians? Absolutely, we do. Uh, and I'm always very excited to pick up my bag and go. <laughs> Now, of course, during the pandemic, uh, we we didn't, we couldn't, uh, and even hosting webinars can be a challenge. Um, as you and I know, uh, an average webinar, even where everybody's got a computer, got internet access, and got adequate bandwidth, can pose problems, and it is that much more challenging in Indian country and in underserved and rural communities generally. And as you know, there has been a very, very big push in this administration to, to provide bandwidth and to ensure access uh, in Indian country. Very significant development. But also culturally, I think there is a preference, and it is certainly my own preference, to meet face-to-face. -face. The reality is that people communicate with you differently when you're talking face-to-face -face, as opposed to talking to them on a screen. Also, sometimes people feel, oh, I don't know, uh, a little shy, perhaps, about asking questions or revealing things that are uh, sensitive to them and they would prefer to talk to you personally. So, yes, we go out to the field and that is the one of the best aspects of my work. I would imagine that's just amazing. And, and given, you know, where you would need to go for these various groups, you know, just incredible places across the country as well. Um, and so you've talked a little bit about some of the resources available, but are there specific resources or educational programs within the PTO that are designed to empower Indigenous communities with knowledge and tools needed to help protect their IP? 
Well, I did mention the Native American Tribal Institute yes. database just moments ago, but I do have to mention it again because it is an empowering tool and it's not being used. But I also pride myself on being able to offer custom programs depending upon the expressed needs and interests of the tribes and Native Hawaiians. I, I never, in any program that I have ever done for any audience, I always say, what, for what are you looking? What do you need? What do you want? What is the profile or profiles of your audience members? And then I develop a program from there. I think that is absolutely essential. Anybody working in Indian country will tell you that no two tribes are ever alike. There are 574 federally recognized tribes. So theoretically, I could have 574 <laughs> custom programs, and that is absolutely fine by me. I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy getting to know people, and I enjoy getting to know the, the challenges and the opportunities available in each and every tribe. Now, Susan, I, as I mentioned before, I'm an IP attorney, and, and I think a lot of our listeners um, who are in IP, frequently we hear terms like traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, and innovations. You know, can you tell us a little bit about the distinctions between these different terms and how the USPTO addresses the nuances between each of these? I was going to say good luck on that, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, even myself, I, I struggle with that from time to time when I'm asked for it. I, I think, and rightly so, because there is no internationally agreed definition of either traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions. Uh, we we do say uh, in the WIPO IGC that traditional knowledge might include know-how, skills, innovations, practices, teachings, and learnings. Traditional cultural expressions or TCEs might take the forms of literature, music, dance, games, mythology, rituals, handicrafts. Either TK or TCEs could be secret or sacred, while others may be routinely used commercially. The protection of TK of TCEs, as well as of genetic resources, is the subject of ongoing work at the WIPO IGC. Now, they've been at work on these issues uh, for over 20 years, and we still we still have not come to agreements on the definitions, so I can really appreciate that it is difficult for you or for anybody else to succinctly define what they may be. Intellectual property on the other hand, uh, Western IP, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, may or may not apply to genetic resources or traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions or aspects thereof. Uh, as I had noted, USPTO, as well as several other federal agencies, is very much a part of these ongoing discussions. I should note that for any of your listeners who are particularly interested in learning more or in studying, for example, the, the World Intellectual Property Organization, IGC Glossary, uh, there are many resources uh, on the WIPO website at wipo.int. And they have a lot of programming as well. WIPO does a yes. lot. Yeah, I've watched yes. some of it. Yeah, they actually just recently had a program, I think, last week or so. So they're they're very active um, in the educational front on that, that topic. Very if, much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. 
So Susan, I want to switch gears a little bit. I mean, you're so involved and so active with these various groups. I would really love to hear about some real world impact. Can you share with us any success stories that come to mind to highlight how the USPTO's engagement with Indigenous representatives has made a meaningful difference? I'll share with you uh, one or two meetings um, that I recently attended and which lead me to believe that maybe we're making a meaningful difference. One was at an event in September in Gallup, New Mexico for tribal artists. Most of the tribal artists uh, were from the Navajo Nation. It was a good-sized room and almost every seat was filled, which is always an encouraging sign. But I think what was successful for me in that meeting was the meetings that I had afterward. As I mentioned, we generally do try to have a one-on-one consultation following a presentation so that people who would like to talk privately have that opportunity. Now, you never know what people are going to discuss, but I, I, I felt that with each person with whom I met, we were talking about something bigger and deeper than just an intellectual property question alone. And with one gentleman uh, with whom I spoke who has, uh, who is working or hopes to work more steadily as an architect, he shared with me his drawings, which took my breath away. And as we talked about hopes, dreams, and finding opportunities, and particularly where there don't appear to be any uh, in one's tribal lands, uh, we we both uh, <laughs> teared up, <laughs> and um, I, that that meeting will stay with me a long time. I guess it reinforced in my mind that you never know what a person may need or where a conversation may go, and you've got to be ready to move right along with it. Uh, the second uh, meeting, very recent, was just last week, where a tribal artist now going back to college midlife, he says, although he looks like 20, 25 years earlier than midlife for sure. But he said um, that he decided to go back to college and finally finish off his degree. But he had contacted me, having met me before through a program that the USPTO had done. And he had contacted me to ask a question about getting a patent for one of his designs. And As we talked along, I thought, now, is this a success or not? Because who knows whether he ultimately decides to apply and whether he pursues a patent application and ultimately is granted a patent. And that has challenged for me, Lisa, my my understanding, my views on how one defines success. Yes, yeah. As a Definitely. federal government employee, I am used to thinking in terms of how many people attended my presentation, how many people applied for and got patents or trademark registrations. And so with that kind of thinking, sometimes you cannot fully appreciate success when it's really staring you in the face. It's just not something that is easy to report up the chain and within the government. But in speaking with a treasured colleague here at the USPTO, who is an administrator for the patent pro bono program, I was sharing this challenge with him about, 
Well, as we were preparing for a, uh, we're preparing a proposal for the Reservation Economic Summit in 2024, and I was telling him about the challenge of needing to define success for people within the agency. He said something to me that I will never, ever forget, Lisa. He said, Susan, success is that they found the patent pro bono program. And I thought, wow. So we've had lots of successes in Indian country over time. I just didn't understand how to count them. Yep. And sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, looking at numbers and things like that. And and we're so focused on number of patents, like you said, or number of patent applications filed that we don't realize that there are other definitions for success. And that's where I come to what I consider to be uh, one of the greater successes in my time here. Uh, the USPTO has conducted several informal listening sessions on WIPO IGC issues involving genetic resources, traditional knowledge, and traditional cultural expressions. We've done these informal listening sessions at the invitation of the National Congress of American Indians. But we finally will be holding a formal tribal consultation on these issues early in 2024. And this, too, is a success. Yeah, they have an opportunity to be heard, right? So that's really pretty amazing. Yes. Long overdue. Long overdue. And it says something about perseverance, too, and not giving up and keep trying to to meet whatever ends you're, you're looking to meet. So, Susan, I wanted to ask you, from your particular perspective, what are some of the unique challenges and considerations involved in safeguarding Indigenous knowledge through the IP mechanisms? There are so many unique challenges and considerations. Uh, in many ways, they're like two systems, uh, two separate, entirely separate systems, and we're trying to figure out how do they talk to one another. Um, as we briefly discussed a few moments ago, intellectual property, uh, as we understand that, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, uh, they may or may not apply to indigenous genetic resources or traditional knowledge or traditional cultural uh, expressions or aspects thereof. It's also important to keep in mind that GRTK, TCEs may be secret or sacred and not commercially available, in which case intellectual property also wouldn't apply. And I think perhaps what is the most challenging is the concept of public domain. As as you know, Lisa, it's a fundamental concept in intellectual property. It defines the boundary between the interests of holders of exclusive rights and the abilities of others, including the public, to access and use the subject matter to be protected. But indigenous peoples, on the other hand, may not share this view. And so taking TK or TCEs out of the public domain remains a principal issue of discussion within the WIPO IGC. That's why I look forward so very much to the upcoming formal tribal consultation on WIPO IGC issues, because it's going to better inform the USPTO and the other agencies that are involved in these discussions. So, Susan, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, how can greater awareness and collaboration between Indigenous peoples and the broader IP community benefit both sides? This is something I stay up nights uh, thinking about. 
because I've been trying to figure out the answer. And I'm not going to leave this earth until I do. So I <laughs> think I better hurry up and do some deep thinking here. But some people, and perhaps many people, may be of the view, putting it most charitably, that Indigenous people's cultural heritage is there for the taking. In other words, that it's in the public domain. And I hope that greater awareness and collaboration will lead to a better understanding and a greater respect of Indigenous peoples' cultural heritage. I recall a very interesting conversation with a, a content creative company representative at the WIPO IGC who said to me, I understand how to license intellectual property. It's something I do all the time, and I'm not unwilling to do it here. But how do I know whether something is a TK or TCE? How do I know to whom I should speak if I would like to use the TK or TCE commercially? What do I do if more than one tribe claims rights to the TK or TCE? Those are great questions. I think if we could figure out how to bring the parties together on these questions, we will have served each other well. Absolutely. So, Susan, during Native American Heritage Month, we want to acknowledge and celebrate the rich contributions of Indigenous innovators. How can individuals and organizations become more involved and supportive of these efforts? I'd first like to give a shout out for a resource right here in Arlington, actually in Washington, D.C., right across the river. And that is the National Museum of the American Indian, or NMAI which has a wealth of resources, including online, on Native American innovation. I also must mention a very important and current exhibition there, Nation to Nation, Treaties Between the United States and American Indian Nations, which was unveiled in, as I recall, 2014 and goes through 2028 or through January of 2028 and an associated exhibition book, which I own. Uh, also, NMAI often records symposiums and puts them online. And one of my personal favorites is one that I also saw in person, but I still do watch it from time to time because it's just that inspiring and provocative to me. Native American Fashion, Inspiration, Appropriation, and Cultural Identity. So these... Uh, this exhibition and this symposium are very much related to what we're currently discussing. Uh, NMAI also has answers to some of the more difficult questions regarding, for example, how uh, Native Americans uh, view Thanksgiving, uh, how people can um, handle Thanksgiving dinner when there are mixed views about the Thanksgiving holiday in the family. That was a question that I think, uh, was it uh, Dear Anne had got yes, this yes. past year in a newspaper? Yeah, yep. so... But on a more personal note, I'm a knitter. And really? I was excited to, yes, I am. Uh, and I think everybody ought to be because it's very good meditative practice, especially for those of us who are uh, type A personalities, as I think a lot of people in intellectual property tend to be. Uh, but I was excited to see that in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, a tribal artist and owner of a yarn store uh, 
widely promoted her company's efforts to raise monies for an organization uh, to raise funds for missing and murdered indigenous women. You will often see the uh, acronym MMIW, and that's what it stands for, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And that organization has grown considerably with the support of just the fiber arts community. So I, I was very pleased to see that on Indigenous Peoples Day earlier this month. But appreciating that not all your listeners uh, may be knitters, <laughs> I, do, I do urge people to read more. There are several writers on the protection of tribal cultural heritage and the intersection with intellectual property, for example, and I urge people to better inform themselves. I've also been very excited to see in just the last few years that several companies already have changed their products and practices to affirmatively acknowledge and celebrate the rich contributions of indigenous innovators. That change, Lisa, is huge. I've lived a lot of years on this earth and I never truly thought that this is something that I would ever see. And I'm even more encouraged that more companies are engaging in this discussion. So I just realized this morning that a month from now, on November 17, I will have been at the USPTO for 20 years. God willing and the creek don't rise, I look forward to many, many more for there is much work to be done. Absolutely. And it, we need you to keep continuing to do what you're doing, Susan. And thank you so much for that. And I just did want to mention in terms of you, you urge people to read more. And, and I do have a suggestion I enjoy, and I'm not sure if you've ever read it. It's called When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through. It's an anthology of Native Nations poetry, and it's it's a beautiful read during um, the month of November. And then if listeners... Would you repeat the title, please? Sure. It's When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, an anthology of Native Nations poetry. And it's a collection of uh, Native American uh, poems, which is just amazing. So, um, and then you and I had talked before the podcast, Susan, about the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, also known as ACES, listeners who are looking to get involved and, and help out with STEM-related projects with the Native American community. It's a great, great organization. They have a science fair and, and a lot of really great activities that, that people can get involved in as well. Yes, and even just reading their website is very exciting and very inspirational. And I think that this is something that is open actually to uh, not only teachers uh, of tribal students, but it's it's good for everybody, including teachers of all and families, to learn more about uh, these areas. Absolutely. Well, Susan, thank you so much again for all the work that you're doing on behalf of Indigenous peoples. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you ever so much. And I, I do hope that this helps to open some doors for us at the USPTO. Uh, we would certainly welcome uh, calls and emails at any time. This is work that I think about all the time. I put my heart and soul into it. So I guess you could say that I'm a resource as well. And I welcome people seeking me out. And Susan, if you wouldn't mind, could you share your email address if people do want to reach out to you? Sure. Um, for those of you who uh, remember the women's right to vote, Susan Anthony 
but I realized that as I go along uh, longer in life, people don't necessarily remember Susan Anthony, but she championed the women's right to vote. Um, so Susan.Anthony at USPTO.gov. And you can certainly find me online. Just search for me, Susan Anthony, USPTO, and I'll pop up somewhere. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Susan. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. 